This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On October 4, 1994, Quebec police responded to reports of a fire at a Marin Heights condominium owned by Joseph de Mambro and Luc Jure, the eccentric leaders of the Order of the Solar Temple. The police arrived at the charred building and discovered the bodies of two Swiss nationals, Jerry and Colette Genoux. Police initially believed this to be nothing more than a tragic accident. But at 1 a.m. October 5th, Authorities in Switzerland responded to a fire at a farmhouse in Cherie. They found 23 people dead. Just two hours later, at 3 a.m., Swiss police learned that three vacation homes were on fire in nearby grange sur sylvain They hurried to the scene and discovered 25 more people dead. A briefcase found at the site contained documents indicating that the 48 dead were members of the Order of the Solar Temple. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the Order of the Solar Temple. The Solar Temple's leaders, Luke Charest and Joseph de Mambro, convinced 74 of their followers to murder each other and or commit suicide. Members believed that they would be reborn with new solar bodies on the star Sirius. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In part one, we investigated the cult's leaders, Joseph de Mambro and Luc Jarret, and the founding of the Order of the Solar Temple. Joseph de Mambro was born in 1924 in Pont-Saint-Esprit, France. 
He started out as a follower of an innocuous movement known as Rosicrucianism, but he soon wanted to lead his own Templar order. Born 23 years after Joseph in 1947, Luc Jaurès was a neo-Nazi sympathizer obsessed with homeopathic medicine. In 1983, he was giving lectures on homeopathic cures when he met Joseph. In 1984, the pair created the Order of the Solar Temple. Members believed the cult was a revival of the Knights Templar, an ancient order of Catholic knights. It has roots in centuries-old Roman Catholic societies, uh, but is, uh, of course, disowned by any, any other, uh, by, by, the, by the Catholic uh, Church. It had links as far away as Australia. It's based in Switzerland. Luke and Joseph persuaded their followers that they were reincarnations of important religious figures, like Jesus and St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And they managed to attract a following of wealthy, well-connected Europeans and French Canadians. At its peak in the late 1980s, the Solar Temple had over 400 followers in France, Quebec, and Switzerland. In part two, we'll focus on the Solar Temple's most fervent members. Luke and Joseph convinced them that the world would end in 1995, but if they killed themselves, they could all be reborn on the star Sirius. Between 1994 and 1997, 74 elite Solar Temple members killed each other or committed suicide. Both Luke and Joseph died in the initial 1994 massacres in Switzerland, alongside their followers. After that, the Order of the Solar Temple was no more. In the initial years following the cult's founding in 1984, the Solar Temple was mostly able to stay under the radar of the media, the police, and government officials. Despite co-leading a cult, Luc Charest was also able to maintain his career in Europe as a homeopathic lecturer. Solar Temple members were able to maintain a low profile by essentially hiding the cult behind other more legitimate-seeming organizations. Imagine you're opening a Russian nesting doll. When you open the first wooden doll, you find another one hidden inside. Open that second doll and you'll find a new one. You have to get through several layers to find the final doll. The Order of the Solar Temple functioned similarly. Starting in 1984, Luc Jaurès acted as the cult's main recruiter. He began seeking out new potential Solar Temple members among the people who attended his homeopathic lectures. If he met someone he felt was a fit, he invited them to join the Amenta Club. This club focused more on Luke's homeopathic studies and didn't delve into Templar order beliefs in magic and rituals. The most eager and faithful members of the Amenta Clubs were then invited to join a more exclusive group of Arcadia Clubs created in 1984. The Arcadia Clubs began introducing Templar rituals to members. The most faithful Arcadia members were then given an invitation to join the Solar Temple. Only members who joined this elite third group were given full access to the Solar Temple's secret doctrines. This method of filtering allowed Luke and Joseph to carefully control the flow of information inside and outside the Order. Their more outrageous beliefs in magic, Templar ritual, and reincarnation were mostly hidden from the general public and members of the Amenta Clubs. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. 
Psychologist Steve Eichel explained in an interview with CBS News that, quote, cultic groups tend to try very hard to remain secretive. They don't want a lot of notoriety or negative attention, end quote. This was certainly true of the Solar Temple. Luke was in particular danger of losing his career as a popular lecturer if word got out that he was the leader of a cult. Right, and Eichel's explanation of a cult's organizational system lines up with the Russian nesting doll structure of the Solar Temple. Eichel explained, quote, the group is closed, so in other words, although there may be outside followers, there's usually an inner circle that follows the leader without question, and that maintains a tremendous amount of secrecy, end quote. So, in the case of the Solar Temple, the Amenta and Arcadia Club members functioned as the outside followers. The Solar Temple members were the elite inner circle who knew the cult's secrets. But despite efforts by members of the Solar Temple to keep their orders secret from the outside world, reporters began publishing rumors of the cult's existence in the late 1980s. When the European homeopathic community learned that Luke was the co-founder of a cult, he lost many of his speaking engagements. In 1986, Luke and the cult's co-founder, Joseph, began spending most of their time in Quebec, where the Solar Temple community was flourishing. After 1986, Joseph's and Luke's doctrines and rituals became increasingly bizarre. They taught their members that their real bodies were made of solar energy that existed on the star Sirius. Solar Temple members' Earth bodies weren't real. They were just projections sent through space by their solar bodies. Elite Solar Temple members were also warned that the world would soon be destroyed by volcanoes in 1995. However, Solar Temple members did not originally plan to cope with the apocalypse by committing mass murder-suicides. Instead, they believed they needed to hoard food and weapons in order to hunker down and survive the end of the world. Starting in 1986, Joseph and Luke also began frequently telling their followers that they were receiving mystical revelations of magical, sacred objects connected to Templar tradition. These holy Templar objects included King Arthur's sword, Excalibur, and the Holy Grail. According to legend, the medieval Knights Templar had protected the Grail and hidden it in Scotland. Luke and Joseph had their follower, Tony Dutois, use lasers to create and project holograms of these objects during solar temple rituals. Then they convinced their members that these holographic projections were actually magic. This is an example of what cult expert Robert Lifton describes as mystical manipulation. Luke and Joseph used ordinary holograms to persuade their members that they had divine visions. Throughout the 1980s, the only ones who knew for sure that the magical images were really holograms were Tony Dutois, Joseph, and Luke. But in 1990, Joseph's 29-year-old son, Ellie, became suspicious of these supposedly magical images that appeared during ceremonies. Ellie confronted Tony Dutois, who admitted that the supernatural images conjured up by Joseph were nothing more than holograms. Ellie was stunned by this revelation. He quickly told several other members of the Solar Temple about the holograms, and a few members soon left the cult. But even when members learned that Joseph and Luke were frauds, this wasn't enough to convince most of them to leave the cult. Some members justified the visual trickery by insisting that it kept less devout members from leaving the Solar Temple. 
One member even described the holograms as an unfortunate but necessary way to keep weaker souls in the fold. Members who learned about the holograms likely suffered from cognitive dissonance, a theory developed by famed psychologist Leon Festinger. Cognitive dissonance refers to the psychological distress that humans undergo when their strongly held beliefs clash with reality. For example, if you found out that a respected mentor or a trusted friend was actually a sexual predator, this would create cognitive dissonance. You always thought your friend was a good person, but now you have evidence that they're a terrible person, and you need to find a way to process these two conflicting ideas. Now, one way people resolve cognitive dissonance is by accepting their new reality and changing their beliefs. Members of the Solar Temple who left the cult after learning about the holograms were accepting the reality of their situation. They realized that they had been tricked and they needed to leave the cult. But people can also resolve cognitive dissonance by doubling down on their beliefs. That's right. Cult members often find a way to excuse or rationalize their leader's actions in ways that allow them to cling to their belief system. We can see that here with the Solar Temple members who insisted that the hologram trickery was necessary to keep the lower level members from leaving the cult. Tony Dutrois himself left the cult in 1991 after confessing the truth to Joseph's son, Ellie. Like Ellie, he began telling members the truth about the Solar Temple's seemingly supernatural ceremonies. Joseph was furious with Tony for telling Ellie and other members about the holograms. He saw this as a betrayal. Joseph's resentment of Tony would soon grow so strong that he would decide to murder not just Tony, but his wife and infant child. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now let's continue the story. In 1991, Solar Temple members began doubting their leaders, Luke Charest and Joseph DeMambro, after learning that many of the cult's magical rituals were nothing more than holograms and sound effects engineered by ex-member Tony Dutois. Some members left the cult, but the core 100 members became even more fervent in their devotion to the Solar Temple's principles. These principles incorporated co-founder Luc Charest's neo-Nazi views. Solar Temple members believed in white supremacy and particularly despised Canada's indigenous peoples. This racist hatred for Canada's indigenous tribes was what finally brought the cult under police scrutiny. On November 23, 1992, a man who gave his name only as Andre called several Canadian parliament members. Andre warned the politicians that his paramilitary group, Q37, was going to murder Claude Ryan, Quebec's interior minister. Andre claimed that Ryan had to die because he was enacting policies that supported Canada's indigenous populations. Concerned by the death threats against Ryan, Quebec police quickly began an investigation into Q37 in the winter of 1992. 
Unfortunately, they had trouble digging up any information on Q37. They couldn't even confirm whether this was a real paramilitary group. That winter, Quebec police learned through informants that Q37 was likely connected to the Order of the Solar Temple. It made sense. Q37 had threatened to kill Ryan for supporting First Nations people, and police were well aware of the Solar Temple's racist views on Canada's indigenous tribes. As the Quebec police investigated the Solar Temple in the winter of 1992, they began to suspect that the cult's members were involved in illegal weapons sales. So they decided to set up a sting operation. A police officer posed as an arms dealer and offered to sell weapons to the Solar Temple. The ruse worked. On March 8, 1993, two Solar Temple members attempted to buy three semi-automatics equipped with silencers from the undercover officer. Police arrested both of them. One of the arrested Solar Temple members was Herman Delorme, an insurance broker, and the other was Jean-Pierre Vinay, an engineer and project donor for the government-owned entity Hydro-Quebec. Canadian police learned that Delorme and Vinay were allegedly buying the guns under orders from their cult leader, Luc Jaurès, so they put out an arrest warrant for Luc as well. Unfortunately, they weren't able to arrest Luc since he was abroad in Europe. Police also discovered that a Cowansville police officer named Daniel Tuga was secretly a member of the Solar Temple. Unaware of the sting operation, Tuga had attempted to help Delorme and Vinay purchase the illegal weapons. Tuga was suspended from the force and eventually expelled. When the news broke of the arrests on March 8, 1993, reporters were eager to learn more about the cult. Just a few days earlier on February 28th, the United States military had begun a siege of the Waco compound in Texas, controlled by a cult known as the Branch Davidians. The siege was receiving international media attention, and reporters in Canada hoped to capitalize on the public's newfound interest in cults. Reporters interviewed ex-members of the Solar Temple to learn more about the cult's views, and began publishing damaging stories about the cult in March 1993. The Canadian public learned that Solar Temple members believed the world was about to end. Seeing as the Solar Temple's members were mostly well-educated and financially successful, it was shocking for Canadians to learn that they were members of a doomsday cult. On March 10th, reporters heard an even more horrific tale from an ex-member, Rosemarie Klaus. Rosemarie explained to reporters that Luke and Joseph manipulated their followers into giving them all of their money. She also warned reporters that Joseph tricked women into having sex with them by claiming the sex was a necessary magical element of the Templar rituals. We've seen this sort of manipulation and sexual abuse in other cults. According to Joseph Navarro, a former FBI agent who specialized in nonverbal communication, a destructive cult leader often takes sexual advantage of members of his sect or cult. Cult leaders persuade followers to sleep with them by ensuring that sex is a requirement with adults and sub-adults as part of a ritual or rite. The Solar Temple's top members were terrified of the negative PR they were getting in the Canadian press, and they immediately launched a campaign to counter the negative attention. On March 10, 1993, the same day Rosemary warned about the temple's inner workings, Solar Temple members held a press conference in Saint-Anne-de-la-Parade, along with the mayor, Gilles Devaux. 
DeVoe swore that the Solar Temple members never caused any trouble. He insisted that the Solar Temple wasn't a cult and that members, quote, contributed to the positive development of the community, unquote. Solar Temple members also convinced a local priest named Father Maurice Cossette to tell reporters that they were harmless. Cossette admitted that he even let Luke and Joseph advertise workshops in his church. Despite their white supremacist views and weapons charges, Luke and Joseph were able to convince community leaders and even mainstream religious leaders in Quebec that the Solar Temple was harmless, even benevolent. Dr. Alexandra Stein, author and expert on cult psychology, explains that anyone can be fooled by a cult. In an interview with Vice, she noted, quote, it's a natural thing to want to distance yourself from something frightening and awful, but we need only go back to Hitler's Germany to see that it can happen to anybody. Anyone can become dissociated to the point where they're not seeing what is happening in front of their eyes, end quote. To be fair, it's unlikely that any of the Canadians defending the Solar Temple in 1993 knew what its leaders were really up to. Luke and Joseph were already planning a potential mass suicide of their Canadian followers in 1993, but they decided to put it off after the arrests and subsequent police investigation of the Solar Temple that began in March. On June 30, 1993, Delorme and Vinay pled guilty to the charge of buying illegal weapons, but they insisted that they only wanted the weapons for self-defense. The claim was supported by the police's own wiretap. In a secretly recorded conversation, Luke told one of the group's members that he needed a gun for protection in the remote areas of Switzerland. Judge Bonin let the men off with a suspended sentence. This meant that the members were released on probation instead of going to jail. He also fined them $1,000 each. It was a rather lenient sentence, but the judge felt this was fair in light of the Canadian public's newfound bias against cults. He noted, quote, the accused have until now been victims of biases and bigotry, which have become tremendously widespread through this event's coverage. They've been regarded as members of a cult, and cults were not very popular in the media at the time of these events, especially due to the incident in Waco, end quote. The U.S. government's siege of the Waco compound had ended in disaster in April, just two months before the Solar Temple members received their sentences. The Branch Davidians had set their own compound on fire, and 78 people had died. The irony, of course, is that almost all of the members of the Solar Temple would soon kill themselves in a similar manner to the Branch Davidians. But the judge had no way of knowing this. On July 15, 1993, Luc Jure returned to Canada for his court appearance. He received a suspended sentence and a fine of $1,000, he quickly left the country for Switzerland. In the aftermath of the investigation in 1993, government authorities in Quebec became concerned that the Solar Temple had recruited and indoctrinated multiple state employees, including politicians, police officers, and workers at the government-owned electric company Hydro-Quebec. Canadian government officials had reason to be worried. Daniel Tuga, a police officer, was already a confirmed member of the Solar Temple. Police had caught him trying to help Jean-Pierre Vinay and Herman Delorme purchase illegal weapons in March. Jean-Pierre Vinay, one of the two men arrested in March, was a project manager at Hydro-Quebec. 
Upon further investigation into Hydro-Quebec, government authorities were shocked to learn that Solar Temple leader Luc Jurey regularly gave lectures at company conferences. Even worse, at least 15 Hydro-Quebec employees were members of the Solar Temple. The Solar Temple had even succeeded in recruiting members of the government. Robert Fallardeau, a department head at the Ministry of Finance, was discovered to be a member of the Solar Temple. Although both the Hydro-Quebec project manager and the police officer lost their jobs in the wake of these revelations, Robert Fallardeau was merely suspended from his job at the ministry for a week. All in all, the fallout for the Solar Temple in 1993 was minimal. But even though none of these investigations resulted in real consequences for the cult, Joseph DeMambro and Luc Jurey grew increasingly paranoid. They had initially put off their 1993 suicide plan due to the initial police investigation. But as the investigation dragged on through the summer of 1993, the public turned against the order of the Solar Temple. Joseph and Luke found it difficult to bear the negative publicity. When Luke returned to Switzerland in the summer of 1993, he couldn't find work. Word spread quickly about his arrest, and no one wanted to hire him as a homeopathic lecturer. Luke's reputation as a respected authority on alternative medicine had been destroyed, and he had trouble coping. According to one follower, quote, his mind changed. He was a tired, 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 disappointed, disillusioned person, end quote. Joseph was also depressed and showing signs of suicidal ideation. By 1993, he was on the verge of turning 70. His health was poor, his kidneys were failing, and he couldn't control his bladder. He even had to wear a diaper pad. Several studies have found links between urinary incontinence and psychological distress. A 2017 study of over 1,000 middle-aged and elderly Korean women found that, quote, inadequately controlled and frequent UI is strongly associated with depression in middle-aged and older Korean women, end quote. And a study conducted by the Radboud University Nijmegen Medical Center revealed that men found it more difficult than women to cope with the psychological distress of urinary incontinence. The study noted that, quote, men reported higher impact scores on their emotional well-being than women, despite the fact that incontinence was less severe in men, end quote. Joseph had also been diagnosed with diabetes and cancer. As we've seen with other cult leaders, dealing with a serious illness can also contribute to depression. There's also a clear correlation between diabetes and depression. According to journalist Kathleen Doheny, quote, about 12% of those with diabetes have major depression, and about 10 to 20% have minor depression, end quote. In fact, there's such a strong link between depression and diabetes that a study conducted by German researcher Andreas Schmidt found that depressed patients who underwent cognitive behavioral therapy also had improved control over their blood sugar levels. Dr. Schmidt noted that the reverse was also potentially true, with depression worsening diabetes. He noted, quote, under chronic stress conditions, blood glucose levels may vary more strongly and poor glycemic control can result, end quote. Joseph wasn't just dealing with failing health. His relationships with his children were also faltering in 1993. His son, Ellie, had been telling other members that Joseph's rituals were fake since he learned the truth about the holograms in 1990. 
Many members initially dealt with the psychological stress of learning about the holograms by becoming more devout. But by 1993, even some of the cult's most religious members were starting to suspect that Joseph and Luke were frauds. One member told Joseph, quote, There are serious crumblings, and you know them. Here they are. Everything we saw and heard in certain places has been a trick. I have known this for some time. Tony Dutois has been talking about this for years already. I have always refused to pay attention to these rumors. But the evidence is growing and questions are being asked. This calls into question many things I've seen and messages. I would be really upset if I had to conclude that I'd seriously prostrated myself in front of an illusion." End quote. Joseph couldn't have been happy that his own son Ellie's revelations about the holograms were convincing members to leave the Solar Temple. Beyond the fact that this was a personal betrayal, the Solar Temple was struggling financially due to the dozens of members who were defecting in the early 90s. But Joseph wasn't just struggling in his relationship with his son. He was also having trouble handling his 12-year-old daughter, Emmanuel. From the moment Emmanuel was born, Joseph had proclaimed her to be the Solar Temple's messiah and cosmic child. But Emmanuel just wanted to be a normal kid who went to the movies and listened to pop music. Emmanuel's growing independence left Joseph feeling threatened. Between his struggles with his children, his health problems, the negative public opinion of the Solar Temple, and the defections of many of the cult's members, Joseph felt like the world was against him by summer of 1993. Joseph himself said in an audio tape, quote, We are rejected by the whole world, first by the people, the people who can no longer withstand us, and our hearth, happily she rejects us. How could we leave otherwise? We also reject this planet. We wait for the day we can leave, end quote. By the end of 1993, both Joseph and Luke were struggling to keep the Solar Temple going. The cult was also struggling financially. Their membership had whittled down from 300 people to about 100 people. Luke and Joseph funded the cult and their own lifestyles by stealing their members' money. After losing over 200 members, the cult leaders were drawing from a severely reduced pool of wealth. And the cult's financial future only grew more ominous in March of 1994. Authorities noticed strange activity in the cult leaders' bank accounts that month. So Canadian police began an investigation into the cult's finances. The Solar Temple's leaders were funneling millions of dollars through their various international accounts. The suspicious transactions included a transfer of $93 million into Joseph's Australian bank account. It was obvious to authorities that the cult leaders were laundering money. Investigators just needed more time to prove it. But before authorities could gather enough evidence to arrest Luke and Joseph, the pair initiated one of the most infamous murder suicides in history. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to cults. By the spring of 1994, things were not looking good for Joseph DeMambro and Luke Jure. Solar Temple members were defecting, the authorities were closing in, and their reputations were in tatters. They were both already suffering from depression, and Joseph was openly expressing suicidal thoughts. But the final straw for Joseph may have been when he learned that Nikki Dutois was pregnant in the spring of 1994. 
Joseph was already furious with Tony and his wife Nikki for leaving the cult back in 1991. He was even angrier that Tony had been telling other members that Joseph's supposedly magical rituals were created with sound effects and holograms. Joseph was also peeved that Nikki was pregnant at all. Back when Tony and Nikki were members of the cult, Nikki had suffered a miscarriage. Joseph then proclaimed that Nikki and Tony were never allowed to have children. As we discussed in part one on the Solar Temple, Joseph believed he had the right to determine who his followers married and whether they had children. Even though Tony and Nikki were no longer in the cult, Joseph saw their decision to have a baby as an unbearable act of defiance. But what angered Joseph the most was the name the Dutois planned to give their son, Emmanuel. This was the same name as Joseph's 12-year-old daughter, Emmanuel. Joseph decided that the similarity of the two children's names was no mere coincidence. If his daughter, Emmanuel, was the cult's messiah, this meant that the infant, Emmanuel, would grow up to be her polar opposite, the Antichrist. Even though Nikki and Tony had left the Solar Temple three years ago in 1991, Tony was still willing to offer technical support for temple rituals. In the spring and summer of 1994, Tony and Nikki often stopped by the Solar Temple compounds in Quebec to help out where they could. Joseph told his Canadian members that Nikki was polluted by her pregnancy and instructed them to keep her out of the group's kitchens and dining rooms. When Nikki gave birth to her son, Christopher Emanuel, in the early summer of 1994, Joseph forbade members from even looking at the newborn. He said, quote, we must observe strict rules, without which we're lost. You must never look at the baby, and you must, on no pretext, approach Nikki. You must disinfect all the rooms, end quote. But it apparently wasn't enough for Solar Temple members to shun the Dutois and their newborn baby. That summer, Joseph decided the entire family needed to be ritualistically slaughtered. In the fall of 1994, Joseph ordered Joel Egger, a Swiss mechanic, to kill the Dutois. He asked Dominique Bellatone to assist. Dominique was Joseph's lover and the mother of his 12-year-old daughter, Emmanuel, the cult's designated messiah. She may have felt that as the mother of the cosmic child, she had a special responsibility to assist in killing the Antichrist, especially since Joseph claimed that the newborn baby was a threat to her daughter. Joseph also ordered Colette and Jerry Genoux, a Swiss couple, to assist in the murders. On September 30, 1994, the four Solar Temple members put Joseph's murderous plan into action. Colette and Jerry Genoux invited the Dutois over for dinner at Joseph's home in Morin Heights, Quebec. Joel and Dominique were lying in wait when the Dutois arrived. The attackers stabbed Nikki four times in the throat, eight times in the back, and one time in each breast. The cult members stabbed Tony 50 times in the chest and bludgeoned him. They repeatedly stabbed the Dutois' three-month-old baby, Emmanuel, with a wooden stake. The cult members then stuffed the bodies of the couple and their baby in a supply closet. It was one of the most brutal murders in Quebec's history. But these horrific murders on September 30th were just the beginning. In the days following the murders, Joseph and Luke prepared their followers for what they called a final transit. 
The most devout Solar Temple members believed that their bodies on Earth weren't real. They were convinced that their real bodies existed as solar energy on the star Sirius. Joseph and Luke persuaded these fanatical members that they needed to kill their earthly bodies so they could travel or transition across the universe and be reborn as solar energy. In other words, transit was the cult's euphemism for suicide. But not all of the remaining members knew about the mass suicide plans. Joseph and Luke explained to their most trusted followers that these less advanced members would not be willing to kill themselves and they needed to be helped through the transition process. Joseph and Luke didn't just want to instigate a mass suicide. They were willing to massacre their own unsuspecting followers. The first to transit or kill themselves were the Genoos. After hiding the Dutois' bodies in their closet on September 30th, they spent the next several days cleaning up the crime scene. On October 4th, they set the condominium on fire and perished in the flames. Hours later, on October 5th at one in the morning, Swiss police received reports of a fire at a farmhouse in the village of Cherie. Upon entering the farmhouse barn, Swiss police found improvised explosives connected to bags of gasoline Thankfully, the bombs hadn't gone off yet. They also found the body of a man named Alberto Giacobino. He had a plastic bag over his head, which made it seem like he had killed himself. But the man had actually died of a gunshot wound to the head. Police looked for Alberto's gun, but they couldn't find it anywhere near his body. If Alberto had killed himself, but with the gun nowhere to be found, police began to suspect that Alberto had been murdered. The police grew nervous, wondering what else they might find. They searched the farmhouse and found a hidden room. Behind a fake wall in the hidden room, police discovered a second hidden room. And in this second room, police found the bodies of 18 Solar Temple members. The bodies were arranged in a circle with their feet touching and their heads pointed outward. When seen from above, the bodies were clearly arranged to look like a star. Some experts believe that the star-shaped pattern of the bodies was a reference to Sirius. This would make sense since members believed they would travel immediately to Sirius after they died. Beyond this hidden room, police found two more hidden rooms and four more bodies. All in all, 23 Solar Temple members were dead. 20 of the members had been shot in the head. This appeared to be a mass murder-suicide. Just a few hours later, police learned that three vacation homes were on fire in grange sur salvan in southern Switzerland. After they put out the fires, police discovered 25 bodies. These corpses had also been arranged in the same mysterious star pattern. Initially, police suspected that Luke and Joseph had killed all the top members of the cult and faked their own deaths so they could go on the run with the cult's remaining money. It seemed like a plausible theory, especially given how manipulative Joseph and Luke were. But by October 15th, police had identified the bodies of Luke Charest and Joseph de Mambro. Joseph's children, Ellie and Emmanuel, were also among the dead. But even though they were dead, Luke and Joseph still maintained a powerful psychological hold on their followers. Many Solar Temple members who had survived the massacre weren't happy to be alive. Instead, they told police that they were sad they didn't get to transit to Sirius with the rest of the group. 
these members still believed so strongly in Luke and Joseph that they decided to imitate the 1994 murder-suicides. On December 23, 1995, French police discovered the bodies of 16 more Solar Temple members in the Vercors Mountains of France. Edith Monlieu, a former Olympian, was among the dead. On March 21, 1997, the remaining eight members of the Solar Temple gathered together in a house in Saint-Casimir, Quebec, to kill themselves. The parents in the group drugged their children and prepared to murder them. But three of the teenage children begged their parents to let them live, and they were allowed to leave. The five remaining Solar Temple members set the house on fire and killed themselves. Police found the three teenagers wandering through the woods. They were the only survivors of the final Solar Temple massacre. The 13-year run of the Order of the Solar Temple was filled with unpredictable twists and turns. Perhaps the most vexing issue with the temple is the secrets they took to their grave. We will never know why the cult burst into flames with such a dramatic immediacy. Were the leaders afraid of the organization's waning popularity? Did they fear the government crackdowns might lead them to their demise? Was it an elaborate cover-up so Joseph and Luke could escape with the fortunes of their members? Or did they actually believe in an imminent apocalypse? Were the leaders and followers of the Order of the Solar Temple really convinced that their exodus was the only way to escape the end of the world? Whatever their reasoning, the story of the Order of the Solar Temple is a tragic one. The massacres that took place between 1994 and 1997 took the lives of 74 people, and the brutal murder of Tony Dutois's family remains one of the most violent in Quebec's history. We'll never know for sure how many of those members died willingly and how many were murdered under Luke's and Joseph's orders, but the ugly taste of the massacres remains as a grim reminder that the short and fast burning fuse of manipulative persons can alight at any moment. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Joseph Yuen and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 